The National Faith and Freedom Conference uh, is held at the Soldiers of the Cross Campground near Branson, Missouri. It's an annual event. It's billed as three days of family-friendly activities. It includes Bible studies. It includes gospel concerts and more. Uh, guests at the event are also expected to be on their best behavior, displaying Christian behavior toward one another throughout the event. The organization that puts it on is pro-life. It supports traditional marriage. And it believes that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of the universe. Oh, and the organization behind it also happens to be the largest Ku Klux Klan affiliated organization in the country. I'll process that for a moment. Earlier this year, an assistant professor of religious studies at St. Lawrence University published a book called Blood and Faith. We'll put that up there on the screen. Blood and Faith. Which he points out in the book that the majority of white supremacist organizations from the KKK to the Aryan nations claim to be founded in Christianity. Well, does that surprise you? If you had a friend or a professor, say, who made the assertion that Christianity promotes and supports racism and white nationalism, how would you respond to that? Or let's say you had a family member who joined a white nationalist group, claimed that the group was founded in Christianity, how would you respond to that assertion? What would you say to them? Well, believe it or not, the passage that we're going to look at today addresses that very issue. If you have a Bible, find uh, the New Testament letter to the Galatians chapter 2. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, we began a new series a couple of weeks ago on the letter to the Galatians. And if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks of this series, you've already seen and you understand that this is not a friendly letter. Like This isn't a letter from someone who says, I was just thinking about you and wanted to reach out to you. Now, this is an urgent letter. It is, it is a corrective letter. It is a confrontational letter. And Paul writes with the same sense of urgency that you would feel if you were watching a masterpiece work of art be defamed. And the issue in this letter is an issue of monumental importance. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And the Jewish apostle Paul planted the churches that he writes to in this letter, uh, churches in Galatia, on the belief that Jesus Christ alone is sufficient to find acceptance before God. But Jewish men who claim to be Christians have infiltrated these churches, and they are marring the masterpiece of grace that the gospel is by insisting that these Gentiles in these churches must not, must not only believe in Jesus, but must also become Jewish in order to be accepted by God. And there were signs that this heresy was taking root in these churches. And to add insult to injury, the infiltrators who were causing this had attacked Paul's credibility to these people. They'd said that he wasn't a real apostle. He's not on par with the other apostles in Jerusalem. He's subordinate to them. And so when we pick up the reading in chapter 2, Paul is continuing the rebuttal that he began in chapter 1 regarding his apostleship. And along the way, we discover some fascinating implications of the gospel on racism and nationalism. Chapter 2, verse 1. Apostle Paul writes, 14 years later, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem this time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. Now, if you've, ever, uh, if you've ever watched a legal show on TV, you understand what Paul is doing here and in the verses preceding these in, in chapter 1. Along with motive, 
Uh, along with motive, what do the prosecution and the defense in any crime show try to establish? A timeline. Yeah, a timeline. Uh, the defense says, see, she couldn't have done it because she was somewhere else at the time that the crime occurred, or he couldn't have been there when the crime was committed because it too, took too long to get from where he was to the scene of the crime. Well, this is what Paul is doing. From the last half of chapter 1, Paul's been establishing a timeline of the things he did and the places he went after encountering, uh, encountering the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And specifically, he focuses on the times that he was in and around Jerusalem. Because the attack on Paul was that he wasn't a real apostle, meaning that he hadn't seen the risen Lord, he hadn't been the given the gospel directly by Jesus, he hadn't been commissioned by Jesus to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Rather, he was merely a student, they said, of the real apostles. And Paul had studied under them in Jerusalem, where the church was based at that point in time. Paul says that's not possible. He establishes a timeline in chapter 1 that demonstrates how briefly he was in Jerusalem, nullifying that whole accusation. I'll direct you back to parts 1 and 2 of this series on our app if you'd like to go back and understand that a little bit more. But now he begins to tell us here in chapter 2 about a trip to Jerusalem that he did take 14 years after the events described in chapter 1. And I have to tell you that I realize on the surface when you read this, when you read this passage it sounds irrelevant and it sounds obscure. But I've also got to tell you that it has breathtakingly historic implications on the gospel and on racism and on nationalism. So what I want to do is I want to break this narrative down into its component parts. First, let's start with the players. Who are the players uh, in this narrative? Well, first there's Paul, of course, we know that, the Jewish apostle, but who's with him? He says, he says I went up this time, he, took, he says, I took Barnabas, I took Titus with me also. Barnabas is Jewish, and we know from other places in the New Testament that everyone loved Barnabas. He was an encourager, always giving attaboys, high fives to people. They all loved him. Who's Titus? Well, there's a book in the New Testament named after Titus. Here's what you need to understand about Titus, though, right now. He is a Greek-speaking Gentile. And so two Jews and a Greek Gentile together on a trip. This is monumental, you see. I want to try to set the stage so that you can really get the monumental nature of this trip. The majority culture in the world at that time was Greek culture. The Jewish people, though, had long since been dispossessed of their homeland, but, but maintaining their ethnic identity was incredibly important to them, no matter where they lived. Well, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you maintain your ethnic identity for centuries when you've been dispossessed from your native land? Well, you do it by continuing to practice your religion devoutly, by continuing to, to speak your language, by eating and abstaining from certain foods that are part of the, uh, of the Jewish law, and by maintaining the other outward customs of physical appearance that were required in the Jewish law and the like. Let me ask you something. How well do you think that goes over? When the minority culture refuses to assimilate with and accommodate the majority culture. And let me not be abstract about this. Let me just ask you. Pretend you're a Greek. You buy a house in a nice Greek neighborhood. You stretch a little buying a house, uh, hoping that your family will grow, and perhaps over time the value of your house will increase. You do some work on the house to update it. You put some money into it. It's a beautiful neighborhood that you live in. 
It's got a cul-de-sac. Uh, you can monitor who belongs in the neighborhood and who doesn't. Kids play in the front yard, on the street. It's really lovely. A few houses come open in the neighborhood. Moving vans appear out front, and suddenly you start to notice these people moving in who are dressed really differently. They dress in all black and white. They wear their hair really very differently. They speak a completely different language, and they intentionally avoid contact with you, only hang out with each other. How would that go over with you? How would that go over with your neighbors? Now, add to, this, add to it this. Add to it this. This minority claims to be the chosen people, and they refer to you, the majority Greek population, they refer to you by the reductive term Gentile. The word Gentile comes from the word nations. From a Jewish person's perspective, you were either Jewish or you were a non-Jew. Like it didn't matter what other nation you came from. It didn't matter if you were an Italian or Spaniard. You were just a non-Jew. So only two kinds of people in the world as far as the Jewish people were concerned. Us and them. Jews and non-Jews. How would that feel? How would their presence in your neighborhood, combined with their weird customs, their isolation, and their rejection of you, go over? How would that go over? What do you think? You think you'd like that? How do you feel about it right now? Do you feel tension inside right now? On the other hand, though, guess what? The Greeks also divided the world into two groups. There were the Greeks. They saw themselves as sophisticated and enlightened. After all, Greece was the cradle, the birthplace of philosophy. So to the Greeks, there were Greeks, and there was the rest of the world who were barbarians. Can you feel the racial tension? And into the midst of this tension, two Jews and a Gentile walk into, well, where? Where do they walk into? Well, let's look at the place that they walk into. We've seen the people, the players. Let's, let's look at the place. Paul says, I went up again to uh, Jerusalem. Now, let's talk about Jerusalem for just a moment. Jerusalem was a racial, religious, and political hotbed, much like it is today. Uh, on the one hand, it was the high holy city of the Jewish people. Their temple was located there. It was their capital city, but they, they had no sovereignty as a nation. They were ruled over by the Roman Empire. What were the Romans? What were the Romans? Well, they weren't Jews, so what were they? Or what's another word for Gentiles? Non-Jews. They were ruled over by non-Jews, and they resented it. They deeply resented the Roman Empire's sovereignty. And of course, the Roman Empire deeply resented the Jewish people's resentment of them. And then in addition to all of that, Jesus had stirred everything uh, up. Within Judaism now, there were the Orthodox Jewish people, and then there were the group of Jewish people who are now following the so-called Messiah named Jesus whom the Jewish leaders discredited and handed over to the Roman Empire to be crucified. And so like Jerusalem today, it was a keg of religious and racial and political dynamite waiting to explode, and two Jews and a Gentile walk into Jerusalem. Feel the tension? So we got the players, we got the place. I want to look at the purpose. What's the purpose of this, of this or excuse me, the prompting. I want to look at the prompting first. What's the prompting for this trip? 
Why would this happen? What's the prompting? Well, remember now that, that this is part of the section in which Paul's defending himself against the accusation that he's not a real apostle, that he's subordinate to the real apostle. So the question is, here's the question, did he take this trip? Did he go up to Jerusalem because he was summoned by the real apostles? Is that why he went? Well, Paul explains in verse 2, no. He says, I went in response to a revelation. Now, there's a lot to be said about this, but in the interest of time, just going to make the point that there have been a lot of trips taken in human history, but none taken because God explicitly told someone to take the trip. That makes this the single most important trip in all of human history. Do you understand that? God told Paul directly, go to Jerusalem. That makes this the single most important trip in all of human history. Two Jews and a Gentile walk into Jerusalem because God told Paul to do it. Now, here we go. Let's talk about the purpose. The purpose. What's the purpose for the trip? Verse 2 again. Paul says, I went in response to a revelation and I said before them, who's them? Uh, it's the apostles. He said, I said before the other apostles, the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. He says, but I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders, in other words, the apostles, for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, that last line, when he says, I was afraid that I was running my race in vain, that sounds, at least on the surface, it sounds like Paul is saying that he was unsure about the gospel that he preached. And he went to the other apostles for validation. That's not what's happening. Let me explain what's happening this way. Remember that we said, uh, we said in previous weeks that Paul preached this. Here was the gospel Paul preached. Believe equals you're saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved. Therefore, he says, obey. Do you mind to put that up on the screen, Tyler? Thank you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved. And then once you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved, there will be this explosive transformation that happens in your life. All of a sudden, you will have a new set of desires to obey the, to obey the Lord. But that doesn't happen until after you've saved. Believe the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved, then obey. The only thing, he says, that can make you acceptable to God is belief in Jesus Christ. That's it. Nothing else. You can't do anything to make yourself more acceptable before God. Not before you're converted to Christianity and not after. But the infiltrators were teaching something completely different. Here's what they were teaching. Remember, they were Jewish. They claimed to be Christian. Here's what they taught. They taught, believe. Yeah, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But obey to. Then you'll be saved. And specifically, what they were saying was, yeah, believe in Christ, yeah, that's, that's good. But they were saying, you Gentiles must also become Jewish. You must obey the external markers of the Jewish law. And we'll talk about this more in, in the weeks ahead. But the external markers of Judaism that they were really concerned about were things like circumcision, obeying the dietary laws, the Mosaic law. Those were the external things that made the Jewish people uh, distinctive as a people. Part of the Jewish law it made them distinctive as a people. And they were saying, you must become Jewish, you must do these things. And as soon as Paul heard that's what these infiltrators were teaching, he recognized the destructive implications of their teaching. Now, a few weeks ago, after the service, someone asked me a question. It was a really great question. They, they asked this question. They said, well, why was Paul so concerned? Because after all, these guys seemed to believe in Jesus. Why was he so concerned about the other 
about the fact that they were adding something. Well, it was a very thoughtful question. And, and here's the answer. Paul recognized four massively destructive implications of this teaching. First, it denied the sufficiency of Christ's atonement on the cross for human sin. When Christ died on the cross, was his death necessary or not? Was it sufficient for human sin? Or was it just a part of forgiving human sin? See, if you add anything else to it, it denies the, the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross. Second, second, it made the gospel like any other human religion. Right? Because in every other human religion, some kind of external human behavior is always required. They say, believe in whoever the God is of the religion, plus obey this stuff. And Paul says, when you do that to the gospel, it makes it just like any other human religion. Third, it removed the teaching of these infiltrators, removed the peace that comes from the gospel. As soon as you introduce human adherence to a law for salvation, it introduces the anxiety of wondering whether I've done enough. And there's no peace in that. Have I done it? You live with guilt. Have I done enough? Should I do more? I wonder if I've done enough. Is God happy? Is God mad at me? Could I have done just a little bit more? When do you know? So there's no peace in that. Paul saw that. And then the fourth implication of it is that it was racist and it was nationalistic. If you have to become Jewish to be accepted by the Creator, then the Jewish people, Paul's own race, by the way, are the superior race, and everyone else is inferior. And you see, racism and nationalism make cultural markers the standard by which everyone else is measured, not Christ's death on the cross. They're forms of legalism. Racism and nationalism are forms of legalism because they come from the same spiritual root as all legalism does, human pride. I'm accepted by God because of me, not because of Christ's death on the cross. That's what human pride says. Which is why Paul says in verse 4, he says, he says, this matter arose, this whole issue arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We didn't give in them, to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Paul sees that the motives behind these infiltrators wasn't really a love for God and His law, but it was their own oppressive, racist, and nationalistic pride. And if you give in to it, if it's given into, if it prevails, it would destroy the gospel and the purposes of God in human history. Now, here's a question that I think some of you probably have in your mind, and it's a very fair question. You might ask this question, wait a minute. The Bible says that God did choose the Jewish people as his people. Like, they were the chosen people. Doesn't that mean that they're superior? Let me, ask you, let me ask you a question. What was the purpose for which God chose the Jewish people? Do you know? Do you know what the purpose was? Why he chose the Jewish people? He chose them to be the people through whom the Messiah would come to all the nations all of the ethnicities of the world. That's why he chose them. You see, from the, from the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, by the way, Adam and Eve were not Jews. The 
Bible says that we all come from one blood, Adam and Eve. They were not Jewish. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, relationships between human beings began to disintegrate. Wars and racism, classism and chauvinism, terrorism and divorce and murder, all of these things. But God is so gracious that he won't let us remain in our ruins. And so he intervened in a human history through the Jewish people to reverse our disintegration and to do what no human beings could have or ever have been able to accomplish on their own in history. And here it is. Here's what his purpose was. To create an inclusive community of diverse, unified people who love each other with Christ as the center of the community. This is also known as the church. That's God's purpose in human history. A diverse group of people who love each other with Christ as the center of them. And that's the church. That was the purpose of the gospel. And I want to tell you something. Many, many people who consider themselves to be Christ followers are terribly confused and oblivious to this. Many people will say, I hear it all the time, frankly. Look, I don't really need to be a part of a church to be a growing Christian. I've stopped going to church, and it's not a problem. What? What? Don't you understand that the church has always been the great purpose of God in human history? That the very reason he saved you was not so that you could go be an individual, but so that you could become a part of one community. A community who is supposed to demonstrate the unifying power of God to a divided world. It is not an exaggeration to say that God saved you as a means to an end. Yes, he loves you, but he saved you to be a part of his church. To show a divided world the unity and the diversity of life in the kingdom over which Jesus Christ rules. And so listen to me. Listen to me. You don't just attend a church because of what you get out of it. Yes, you should get something out of your church. If you don't, leave it. Find another. Because you attend a church to show the world what God can do. And if you drop out of church, you're missing the whole point of your salvation. And so you see the purpose of, 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 of this trip. Paul gets the this big picture story of God in human history. He recognized the big vision of God and, and that it, he recognized that the big vision of God was at stake here. If the Jewish law is part of the gospel, it will divide people. It will perpetuate an us versus them mentality. It will make one ethnicity superior to another ethnicity. This is why God, God sends Paul to Jerusalem. This is why Paul says that he fears he will run the race in vain. It's not that he was afraid that the other apostles didn't know the true gospel. He was afraid that they wouldn't be true to the gospel because it would be so easy to give in to the Judaizers, the infiltrators. So Paul takes Barnabas and he takes Titus with him and he does it to make the whole issue very concrete, very personal. Here are three people who formerly would have been divided by race, who would have never been together, who have come together in unity under the name of Jesus Christ and he puts Titus in front of them so that this isn't some conceptual theological argument. He puts Titus in front of them to make it very, very concrete and he says to them, what are you going to do? Are you going to make Titus, a Greek, become a Jew? 
very famous commentator John Stott sums it up in this way. Was their vision, was the other apostles' vision, big enough to see the gospel of Christ, not as a reform movement within Judaism, but as good news for the whole world and the church of Christ, is the international family of God. That's what's so historic about this trip. Does the gospel obliterate racism and nationalism? Or does it support it? Because if it supports it, it ruins the whole purpose of God in human history. Well, what was the result? What was the result? We talked about the, the players. We talked about the, you know, the place and the prompting and the purpose. What was the result? I know what some of you are thinking. All the other words so far started with a P. This one doesn't. And I got to tell you, I couldn't really come up with a word that started with P and didn't really care to spend the time trying to tell you the truth. <laughs> What's the result of Paul's trip to Jerusalem? He summarizes it in verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled by these other apostles to be circumcised, to become a Jew, even though he was agreed. Skip down to verse 6. <clears throat> As for those who seem to be important, he's talking about the other apostles. He says, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God doesn't judge people by external appearance. By the way, what a double-forced uh, what a, what a, a, a double phrase there. God doesn't judge by external appearance. Not only does he not judge by external appearance, but whether you're an apostle or not, he also doesn't judge by external appearance, period, because the gospel is based on who Jesus Christ is, not who you are. It says, God doesn't judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those are the main three apostles at the time. Those reputed to be pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. And it might sound like Paul is trying to diminish the other apostles, but, you know, like when he says, you know, reputed to be pillars, whatever they were, I mean, it might sound like he's trying to diminish them. That's not what's happening here. He's, he's having to rebut, remember, he's having to rebut the infiltrator's argument that he's a lesser apostle than the other. But at the same time, he's also saying, these other apostles that the infiltrators say are, are greater than me, and and, and the ones that you uh, Galatians think are so wonderful, well, they recognized and endorsed the legitimacy of the gospel that I have preached to you and that you are now rejecting. That's what he said. That's the result. The other apostles said, you're right. It is not about becoming a Jew. Belief in Christ and Christ alone is what saves another, a person. Two, Gentiles and a Gen two, two Jews and a Gentile walk into Jerusalem on a historic trip from God and they explode every kind of racism and nationalism that anyone would ever attach to the purposes of God. And so back to the original question. If you had a friend or a professor who made the assertion that Christianity promotes and supports racism and white nationalism, how would you respond? Or let's say you had a, a family member who joined a white nationalist group and claimed that the group was founded in Christianity. How would you respond? What would you say to them? Here's what you could say. Two Jews and a Gentile walked into Jerusalem. 
and they change the world. And just in case it's not obvious to you, let me just make it really clear. Three things that mean. One, racism and nationalism cannot exist with the gospel of grace. They are mutually exclusive. Full stop. There is no way to make them part of the gospel, no matter how you dress it up. Why? Two, because racism and nationalism deny the sufficiency of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Either Christ's death on the cross was enough or it wasn't. If racism and nationalism are required for acceptance before God, then Christ's death wasn't sufficient. And third, racism and nationalism of all kinds violate the very purpose of God in human history, the church. A community of people where acceptance isn't contingent on ethnicity because acceptance is based only on belief in Jesus Christ who died for sinners of every nation under heaven. You see, only the cross can affirm each and every ethnic group under heaven and at the same time make it impossible for you to exalt your ethnicity over another. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other power in the world like that. Two Jews and a Gentile walked into Jerusalem and they changed the world. Would you bow your heads with me? It's a very basic part of our human nature, Lord Jesus Christ, we know this, to exalt ourselves over another person, to find anything we can to exalt ourselves over another person, whether it's race, ethnicity, or excuse me, race or national, uh, uh, the nation that we come from, whatever. It's what we do. And Lord Jesus Christ, I would be the first to tell you that the church in America as we meet together on Sunday mornings, it doesn't reflect the ethnicity of the rest of our culture. It doesn't reflect the ethnicity that, for which you created the church. To whatever extent that is a part of our sin, we confess that and we ask your forgiveness, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would diversify city church, that it would be the kind of place that everyone knows, that no matter where they come from, no matter what their skin color, no matter what their background, no matter what their national background, that they're welcome here because the people here are all worshipers of you, Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the only thing that makes any of us acceptable. And I pray that you would transform City Church in that way. And Lord Jesus Christ, to whatever extent I am a problem in that. To whatever extent my own attitudes, and the way I treat people, to whatever extent it perpetuates the division in our culture between ethnic groups, pray that you would transform me, change me, so that I reflect as a leader in your church the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and your purpose in human history. And we pray these things now, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you've done on all of our behalves. 
in your name that we worship.